The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We are continuing sort of a part two to a part one that I preached about three weeks ago. I was supposed to do this one right after that one, and then I kind of got the flu and uh, ended up not even being able to come to church that Sunday. I was uh, very grateful to Pastor Sung Kim uh, for stepping in very last minute and preaching. He wasn't here to preach. He came to just worship, but it's always the job hazard of being a pastor attending a church. Is you never know when you're going to get asked to preach, uh, but... Uh, I got a lot of good feedback from it, and it seems like people are very appreciative of the message that he, um, that he, he brought to you. Um, so uh, a few weeks back, I preached on this part one of this story of David and Bathsheba. And uh, in that message, my main focus was sort of on this deceiving nature of sin, how easily and deeply we can plunge into sin without realizing uh, how far we've actually fallen into it. And um, I want to make a statement that I don't know if you'd actually agree with just right off the bat, but think about it for a bit. But as crazy as it may sound, what I would argue is that the sins that are hurting you the most in your life right now, okay, the ones that are actually consuming you or destroying you uh, may be the sins that you uh, don't even realize are there in your heart. Um, it's just, that's just the deceptive nature of sin is it disguises itself in so many ways in our life uh, as it did in David's life. And that's why even this recognition of our sin, our ability to repent to acknowledge it is the supernatural work of God that he has to do in our hearts to sensitize us to our sins so that we can see it from God's perspective. Um, and I also pointed out another thing in that previous message, which is that uh, in the face of our sin, after the sin has been committed, our natural instinct, and when we feel the guilt and the shame of it, is to hide it to cover it up, to basically, in essence, go into damage control mode um, in order to protect ourselves. And that was David's instinct when he sinned with Bathsheba and committed adultery and then ended up killing uh, her husband, Uriah, to cover it up. When the whole sordid affair was over, I think there was literally a sense in which David thought that he had gotten away with murder because after Uriah is dead, um, he ends up marrying Bathsheba and so he gets a wife out of the deal. And it looks like, you know, no harm, no foul. Except for that ominous last sentence in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel where it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David Wolpe says this, commenting on this whole dynamic of covering and hiding in our sin. One wonders whether in some corner there is a fancy that David can keep God from knowing if he can hide it from everyone else. 
For unlike in other moments, David does not pray. The psalm associated with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, is a plea set after the prophet Nathan approaches him accusingly. First, David feels the slightly uneasy but exhilarated sense of a man who has sinned and gotten away with it. You know that feeling when you see the lights of the police car behind you and you are speeding and you go, oh, shoot, and then it passes you? And you're like, it's not me. I think that's how David felt. Is that I got away with it. I got away with it. But that instinct to cover up our sin, to go into hiding, is a wrong instinct. Because it drives us further away from God. Away from the healing that he wants to bring. The restoration he wants to accomplish in our lives. And so, in God's love... He sends his prophet Nathan to pursue David as he hides and exposing and confronting his sin so that he can be restored, so that he can be forgiven. And so today I want to go a little bit deeper into the story of David and Bathsheba and unpack for you some more of the dynamics of sin that often get in the way of our true repentance our true restoration that God wants to bring about because of our sin. And so before we get into that, why don't we just pray and we'll uh, look into uh, this text once again this morning. God, we do pray that our eyes would be open, the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our soul, to understand all of these um, ways that sin is at work within us, that we are in utter denial of, that we sort of push and rationalize and minimize and... um, And I just pray, God, that this morning that there would be a profound sense of understanding of um, what the essence and the true nature of sin is that is at work in us and the essence of who you are in wanting to restore and to heal and to build back what was broken in our lives and in our relationship with you. And so we open our hearts to you this morning and pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So in that part one of this really brief two-part look at David and Bathsheba, um, I showed you a clip from the Swedish film, uh, Force Majeure, about this Swedish family uh, of four that was vacationing in the ski resort in the French Alps. And while having breakfast at this outdoor patio restaurant at the resort, uh, they witnessed this controlled avalanche that's set off by the resort using explosives. And probably, I didn't really want to go into a whole explanation of that, but I kind of assume you already know that that's what ski resorts do, right? Is they actually uh, create man-made avalanches um, in order to uh, protect the people from the freshly fallen snow so that a natural avalanche doesn't happen and end up burying people. So as this controlled avalanche is descending on the resort, uh, the guests at the restaurant become increasingly concerned that it may not be as controlled as the resort intended it to be. And now suddenly, they're in danger. And eventually, all out panic ensues. And in that chaos, the, the father, Thomas, or Tomas, uh, can only think about saving himself. And he even uh, pushes people out of the way in order to run for shelter inside the resort. Meanwhile, Ebba, the mother, 
her instinct is to grab her children and does whatever she can to protect them. And as the cloud of snow and dust settles, it becomes clear that as scary as that moment was, the avalanche ended up stopping just short of the resort and that there was actually nothing to fear. They were never in any real danger. And the remainder of that film deals with the aftermath of that incident as the wife, Ebba, presses her husband, Tomas, to admit what he did, that he abandoned the family in order to save his own skin. But Tomas is equally stubborn, and he refuses repeatedly to acknowledge anything. He says, I did no such thing. Well, as an introduction to today's message, I want to show you two more brief scenes from that movie. The first scene is going to be a dinner party with some close friends of theirs who come to visit them at the resort. And during that dinner party, they're each sort of telling their version of what happened, and the couple is utterly confused. They don't know who to believe in this stalemate until the wife, Ebba, remembers that Tomas, the husband, had actually recorded the whole thing on his phone. And so she's like, why don't we just pull out the phone? The second scene is actually at the end of the movie, when after constant arguments and fighting and debating, um, Tomas has this dramatic moment of honesty when he finally comes clean with the lies that he's been hiding behind. Uh, And I want to say, because this is a foreign film, uh, for those listening to this message on the podcast, uh, we're going to actually make these video clips available on our church website so that you can look at it. Unless you speak Swedish, you're not going to know when you listen to it and not see the subtitle. So let's go ahead and play the video clip, and then we'll go on. Du har rätt till din egen upplevelse, självklart. Men jag delar inte den. Men har jag allt på film? Mm. Vi har det ju på mobiltelefon, kan vi bara kolla på mobilen då? Ja, det är okej okay för det om jag visar det där. Jag tror det räcker. Nej. Jag tror verkligen. Jag går och hämtar din mobil. Vi 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 blev såklart vi blev rädda. Det var så där men vi är ju här. Vi, det, vi har ju vi har ju liksom Harry och Vera de Jag vill lyssna lite och se på detta här Det bara så blir vi färdiga med det. Jag har ett väldigt behov för det. Kan jag förlåta det? Ja. Ska jag visa. Fint. Mm. Här. Här kommer den. Här sitter vi. Det är du som filmar, ikke sant? Här kan man tydligt se någon som springer iväg. Er vi enige om det? Kan dere være enige med meg om det? Mm. Altså, man hører jo skrittene dine også. 
Jag kan hålla med om att det ser ut som att det springer. situation så är er det väldigt lurt att ta och komma sig ut av labyrinten så att du kunde komma tillbaka och grava dem upp visst i begrav ned. På samma sätt som att när du trycker sänkes i en, en flygkabin så så är er det om att barnkunskap att man ska ta på sig masken själv först och så på barnen. Så du gjorde ju egentligen det som var att riktig i en slik situation Det var väl det var det du tänkte. Liksom. Nej, det kanske jag inte gör. Ebba, 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 kom, kom, kom. Ja. Jag fattar att du är besviken på den här personen som har visat sig. Jag är också jättebesviken på honom. För jag hatar honom. Jag hatar honom så jävla mycket. Och ja. Jag kan inte förlåta det han har gjort för att han har gjort en massa andra saker förut också. Han, han har liksom ljugit, han har varit otrogen han känner. Han fuskar i spel när han, 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 han spelar med här och vet du vad patetiskt den här personen är och jag jag kan inte Jag kan inte leva med honom längre. Jag vill inte göra det. Det är inte bara du som är ett offer. Jag är för fan också ett offer. Jag är för fan ett offer för min instinkt.
až to sme byli Tomas finally acknowledges the fact that he acted in this cowardly way and abandoned the family uh, in order to save himself. Uh, the pain of that truth is, is almost too much for him to bear. Uh, and so he has an, a, a near mental breakdown. And um, I think that is why maybe like Thomas, uh, Tomas, all of us struggle to come clean with our sins. Uh, because acknowledging the truth about our sins is almost too much for any of us to bear. Um, I don't know. I, I, I doubt many of us have had moments of confession like what we just saw in this movie clip. Um, but I sort of wonder in lesser forms, um, how often have you actually felt genuine sorrow for your sins? Because uh, I'm going to conjecture that if we're really honest, I think moments like that are pretty rare in our lives. They're pretty rare. I, I actually don't think it's a, a common experience for us to be really impacted full force with the weight of the things that we've done. I'd say that even when we know we've done something wrong, it's actually rather scary how little guilt or sorrow we feel about it. And that's what we saw play out in the life of David in this episode with Bathsheba, isn't it? David did some unbelievably horrible things. Using his power as a king, David would sleep with a married woman regardless of whether she wanted to sleep with him or not. That was his right, he thought, as a king. And after he finds out that he's impregnated her, David calls for her husband Uriah, who is out on the battlefield fighting his battles for him. Uriah is actually listed as one of David's 30 mighty warriors, his mighty men. These were his elite shock troops, his best soldiers in his army. And he tries to get Uriah to go home to sleep with Bathsheba in order to make it look like He's the one that impregnated her and not David. But Uriah refuses to go home to his own house while his fellow soldiers remain on the battlefield in tents. And so David tries to get Uriah to compromise his own convictions by getting him drunk. But even that plan fails. And so as a last resort, David sends Uriah back 
carrying his own death sentence to the general Joab and hatches this plot to put him in the most intense fighting and then at, right at the strategic moment telling Joab to withdraw the rest of the soldiers so that, Joab, so that Uriah would be left exposed. And sure enough, Uriah is killed in the field of battle. And it's just crazy when you think about it. How do you get from a lustful look at a woman bathing and next thing you know, you end up with adultery and murder? And how is it that this guy, David, was able to do all of this without even a hint of remorse or guilt, as far as we could tell in this story? In other words, what is the inner logic of the human heart that enables us to do these kind of things? And to feel so little guilt about doing them. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I don't think there's a single answer, a singular answer to the questions that I'm asking about the twisted nature of the human heart. But at least what the prophet Jeremiah is saying is that there is a desperate sickness in all of us called sin. And because of that, it has twisted our hearts in ways that we are not even fully capable of comprehending in terms of the layers of self-deception that it is capable of within every single one of us. And in the face of that, what the Bible tells us in the face of that sin is that what we need more than anything else is a heart of repentance that leads to God's forgiveness. In other words, according to Scripture, the cry of the soul ought to be, forgive me, forgive me, God. I think things are very confused in our modern times, though. Because what modern psychology has done is it has radically reoriented our perspective on sin. And unlike the framework of the Bible, the framework of psychology says that the fundamental cry of the human heart isn't forgive me, but it is understand me. Understand me. And here's the problem with that. When the When being understood becomes the deepest longing of our heart, there is a very real danger of viewing our sin as understandable. In other words, the statement that is being made is, I'm not really asking you for forgiveness for what I've done. I'm asking for your understanding. Or maybe we could put it like this. I know what you you witness me do doesn't put me in a very good light. But if you only knew what I was going through at the time, what I had to put up with, you'd understand why I acted the way I did. Now, I need to nuance this, and I want to be very clear here. I am not against counseling. I am not anti-psychology. I am not anti-professional counseling. In fact, if you're here at ICC for any length of time, you'll hear me speak very regularly about the idea of brokenness and the 
actually the really critical role that going and digging into our past and understanding the sources of our brokenness plays as part of the discipleship process. In fact, that's much of what we're doing in our journey groups here at ICC. So I'm not saying that, that any kind of exploration into the deeper motives and the things that drive you are somehow anti-Bible or anti-God. But what I am saying is, is this. The ultimate goal of all of this exploration is not to make our sins understandable, but to help us find God's grace through that process of repentance. Larry Crabb puts it like this. When we confess our faults to God or to one another, we usually try to explain away our sin. Explanations are requests not for forgiveness, but for understanding. When we regard our wrong actions as understandable, we feel only a little guilty. But meaningful repentance and enduring change require more than casual confession of guilt. In other words, maybe I could phrase it like this. One of the hindrances to repentance is our constant desire to justify ourselves. And the, you don't have to go any further than our apologies to understand that about human nature. Because as Larry Crabb points out, usually when we apologize to someone, as paradoxical as it sounds, we're not actually asking for their forgiveness, are we? The truth is most apologies are attempts to justify ourselves so that the other party won't think badly of us. In other words, apologies are just disguised damage control, trying to protect our reputation and to put ourselves in the best possible light in the eyes of others because of the ugly things that we may have done in their presence. And this is constantly at work in the human heart. Is not forgive me, but understand why I did what I did. In other words, I want to be justified, vindicated in the things that I've done, even when they're very ugly things that I've done. It's interesting that in the story of David and Bathsheba and then the subsequent encounter with Nathan, the prophet, in chapters 11 and 12, this verb send shows up over and over and over again. And that's one of the tools that the Hebrew writers will often do is use repetition to drive a message home about the point that they're trying to get across in the story that they're telling. And so this word send shows up over and over again. Second Samuel 11, chapter 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Job, Joab. In other words, when all of the other kings are going to war, David sends Joab to fight his battles instead. And then in verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. The, the succinctness of this is very striking. It says, he looked, he liked, he sent for her, and he had her. You know? Basically, Bathsheba is treated like property. I wanted it, so I took it. And then verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Give me the husband. Send him to me so I can cover up my crime. But when that plan fails, he commits the final act that would lead to Uriah's death. 
Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And so now that the husband is out of the picture because he's dead because of David, he sends one more time for Bathsheba to claim her as his own wife. Verse 27, and when the mourning was over, so he allows Bathsheba to mourn for the death of her husband, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. So through these repeated usages of the word sent, we're given a picture of David that's rather a picture of a monster. Using his power to control everyone around him. Self-centeredly ruining their lives. All to get what he wants for his own pleasure. He will have it his way at everybody else's cost. In other words, David's self-centered abuse of power. Uh, now, when we think about it, I, I think it probably revolved around the rationale that, hey, I'm the king. I'm above the law. It's my right to take whatever I want in my kingdom. Even if it's another man's wife. Even if it's taking the life of one of my most trusted and faithful soldiers. Now, truth is, I don't think any of us have power like that. I don't think any of us come from royalty. Uh, But I'm going to argue this, that just like David, the root of our sin as well is the self-centeredness that consumes every other desire in our life. When I say that, I'm saying it is to put our desires, our needs above everybody else, even God. Larry Crabb again frames the dynamic of self-centeredness like this. Desiring our own good is not sinful in itself, but natural and instinctive. It is the act of putting ourselves at the center of the universe where God belongs that is unqualified sin. This is, in fact, the very definition of sin. When self-interest continues as the dominant commitment of our lives, when we devote our energy to serving ourselves above all others, then we are wrongly self-centered. But think how infrequently we confess our self-centeredness and how often we request God's help or guidance or comfort. Encouragement and direction seem more necessary than pardon. The greatest obstacle to building true good relationships is justified self-centeredness, a selfishness that deep in our souls feels entirely reasonable and therefore acceptable in light of how we're being treated. Resentful thoughts should provoke guilt, but more often we regard our bitterness, not as the product of a flaw within us, but as the interplay between our delicate sensitivities and other people's failures. We think others should be rebuked, while our damaged souls receive healing. Maybe I could summarize it like this. All sin revolves around self-centeredness, putting ourselves above others, even God. And I think if we can understand sin this way, we can realize what all sin has in common. It is that I am unrelentingly pursuing that agenda of my needs above everybody else's. And it shows up, I think, in a hundred different ways in our life our constant demands that others attend to our needs out of our own neediness 
and self-pity. The constant need to promote ourselves, to talk about ourselves in a conversation with someone else rather than actually genuinely be interested in them. The jealousy that we experience at the success of others. The gossip that we engage in that attempts to try to smear the reputation of someone. If we can knock them down a notch in the eyes of others, for some strange reason, it makes us feel a little better about ourselves. Looking down on others with a self-righteous, judgmental attitude when we see their failings and struggles. There's just so many ways that we express this, but what it has all in common is this self-centeredness, the selfishness in which we are constantly trying to elevate ourselves and diminish others. And as Larry Crabb points out, the problem isn't only that we're self-centered, but that we feel justified in our self-centeredness. In other words, if somebody were to call us out on this kind of behavior, the truth is it does look pretty ugly. And so the question is, why don't we feel more guilty about that self-centeredness? Well, I think the way the logic works in our heart is, if people only understood my struggles that we have to endure, then they'd understand why I act so selfishly and hurt others. And what I'm saying is this, when we're stuck in this way of thinking, what we're really saying is this, the struggles and the pain that I endure in my life that cause all this behavior is actually more important than the sinful behavior itself. We're getting away from forgive me to understand me, right? In other words, I don't deserve judgment, I deserve sympathy. And if you could only understand what I have to deal with, then you would know why I do what I do. Now, I want to again nuance this. God does care about our pain and the difficult situations that we face. But the point I'm making is this. We cannot use that pain or our difficult circumstances as an excuse for our sinful behavior and selfishness. The only answer, once again, to that sinfulness is God's grace and forgiveness, which can cover our sin. Now, let me make one final point here about these dynamics of sin and repentance in our life. These are all, I think, important things I'm pointing out about self-centeredness and our desire to justify ourselves and the way we cover and hide our sin. But I think the last point I want to make is the most important one, and it is this. At the root of all sin is a diminishment of God in our hearts. Okay. What I find so interesting when, David the pro- uh, when Nathan the prophet finally confronts David is this. He doesn't give him a long lecture about the dangers of lust or the destructive nature of adultery or even murder. That's not the content of his message to David, which in a way seems like it would be logical, right? That that's what Nathan ought to be calling him out on. Instead, Nathan's agenda is actually kind of different. 
Listen to what God says to David through Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, verse 7 to 9. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Do you catch this? God is totally focused on his relationship with David. The way that David has pushed God into the corner of his life. What God is in essence saying to David is, I have given you everything that you've ever wanted and even more. And in fact, if there was anything that you still wanted, I would have given it to you gladly if you would have only asked. And then in verse 10, it says this, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. God is saying this to David. In this horrible rampage of sin that you've just engaged in, you've hurt a lot of people. But ultimately, The root of your sin is against me. Ultimately, you have turned your back on me. And David seems to come around to God's perspective on all this. Because in verse 13, this is what David responds. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Against the Lord. This is reinforced in the psalm that David wrote during this time in his life. Psalm 51. If you get Psalm 51, verse 4, it says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I kind of wonder how those words must have sounded to Bathsheba. Really? God is the only victim in this? I don't think that David is making light of the pain that he caused Bathsheba and Uriah and all those other soldiers that were killed as collateral damage on the battlefield in order to get Uriah dead. I think David's point is this. What he's trying to say in this psalm is that, that adultery, that murder, all of this horrible, ugly stuff I've did, What he says is, what I realize is it all flows from my heart toward God. It is ultimately God that I have sinned against. And so his cry is in Psalm 51, verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David is saying, what I need more than anything is to restore God to the rightful place in my heart. And so he says, God, though I have sinned like this, do not abandon me. Do not leave me alone in my sin, but draw near to me again and be with me again. Eugene Peterson summarizes it like this. If I am ignorant of or indifferent to my sin, 
I'm ignorant of or indifferent to the great and central good news. Jesus saves. In the Christian life, our primary task isn't to avoid sin, which is impossible anyway, but to recognize sin. The fact is that we're sinners, but there's an enormous amount of self-deception in sin. Sin isn't essentially a moral term designating items of wrongdoing. It is a spiritual term designating our God avoidance. That we sin so frequently is a puzzle, for our lives are always diminished in the process. But our capacity for sin is no puzzle. It's required by the nature of love and freedom, the twin aspects of our humanity in which we become what we were created to be. A coerced love is hardly love. An enforced freedom is no freedom. If God is serious about creating us to experience his love and to love freely, to experience his freedom and to freely love, then there must be the capacity to not love, to not be free. When we exercise those options negatively, regardless of the forms in which those acts come to expression, we're sinners. Now, let me elaborate on what Peterson is saying a little bit because I think there's many ways to misconstrue his, his teaching here. Peterson is not saying that we ought to have a flippant or cavalier attitude towards sin, going like, yeah, adultery, murder, that's really not a big deal. That's not what Peterson is trying to say. But what his point is, is that all sin ultimately points to our attitude toward God. In other words, the fundamental choice of sin is whether we choose a life with God or away from him. And out of that fundamental decision in our lives will flow all of the other more minor choices that we make in our life. In other words, in essence, there is really only one true great sin. It is to diminish God in our hearts and to see God as less rather than more. And out of that will flow all of the other sins that you will commit in your life. It's interesting, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 to 6, right before the flood of Noah, we find these words in the Bible. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. The commentary of these verses is the commentary that the human soul, apart from God, is totally lost and irredeemable. Without God's grace, there is no hope for the human heart. The levels of depravity that we will sink to are bottomless. Um, I want you to think for a minute about this season in David's life. David is no longer this excited youth hungry to prove that there is a God in Israel. He's won enough victories on the battlefield. He's got nothing left to prove. He's middle-aged now. And truthfully, I think David is tired of fighting God's battles for him. 
And so he'd rather stay home and enjoy some of the wealth and peace that he's worked so hard for decades to obtain. Now that he's finally kind of gotten the good life, his heart has changed. And so as it says in the season when kings go to war, David says, not this year. I don't feel like it. David Wolpe kind of describes it like this. In short, this upstart, this once neglected child, has accumulated power and women and a divine promise greater than any before him. Perhaps he stays behind in Jerusalem because, because daring has given way to wonder at the prosperity that he does not wish to risk in war. Perhaps he wants to run his good fortune through his fingers like the gold coins of legend. And as I close out this message, I want to share this. I think truthfully, many of us in this church are at David's same stage of life. I think we can look back to a younger day in our lives when we were really, truly, honestly hungry for God. When God was the one reality that loomed large greater than any other. But now for many of us, as we look at our lives, you know, where does God fit into the whole picture? Let me say this. My worry for most of us here at ICC is not that there's going to come a day when we totally abandon God and reject Him and walk away from the faith. That may happen to some of us. But that's not my primary worry for any, most of us in this room. My great worry is that we can sort of push him into a corner where he becomes harmless and doesn't really bother us and the things that we want out of life. I share this because I see that same war happening in my own heart. I think about my younger years of uprooting our entire family and relocating us to Africa. and just struggling to raise enough funds to keep us on that mission field. And I think about when I first got hired here at ICC. And it was funny because we got into all these negotiations about me coming on staff here and everything. And then after we agreed I'd come on staff, we realized we had not talked about salary at all. And then there was this embarrassing moment where they were like, we don't know if we could fit you in our budget. I was like, oh, well, that's kind of a little bit of an important detail. Like, am I going to get a salary or is this like a volunteer job? And truthfully, it was a struggle to give me a salary the first several years at ICC. But now I've got kids in college. I've got a mortgage. I've got multiple cars in my driveway. And I'm thinking, is this retirement package adequate? There is something so insidious about this type of positioning in our hearts. And I think there's a real worry that we can get to that place in our life where we just want God in small doses, you know? Just there's this little God drawer in my house, and he can fit in there, but just don't touch any of this other stuff. I think there's a very valid parallel in marriage 
It's interesting that God compares his relationship with us to the marriage relationship. And what God is in essence saying is, just having me in your life as just one of the loves among many, it just doesn't work. It cannot work. That is not a sustainable option for the Christian life. And, and we know this, because just think about that if that was true in marriage. If you were neglecting your spouse, your spouse had to constantly compete for your attention. And if your spouse were to look at you and say, do you even love me anymore? Do you still want to be in this? And you were to say, come on, hon. Why do you got to be like that? Like, I love you. I love our dog. I love my iPhone 10. I love the new car I got. I love everything. I love everybody. Does that work in marriage? No way. And I think God is saying the same thing in our relationship with him. Is God is saying, you were made to worship something. That's the way I designed you. You cannot help but give your heart to something. And God is asking, is it me? Is it me? Because if it's not, something is going to fill that void. And so I want to ask you this morning, what is consuming your heart these days? What is it that consumes you? Because I'm telling you, something consumes you. Something has your heart. And what God is saying is, if I'm not there at the center of your heart, then something else is being worshipped other than me. That is the root of sin. And let me just end with this, is this, that God is always in loving pursuit after us even when we push him into the corners of our life. David was running from God, and God was chasing after David. That is the faithful, loving God that we worship. He chases after us, and he restores us, and forgives us, and heals us. Another psalm that is attributed by many scholars to this time with Bathsheba is Psalm 103. And I want to end with this so we could go into communion. And David says this in verses 8 to 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Let's pray. The worship team is going to come and lead us in a hymn of response. And I just want to invite you to spend just a moment in reflection before we sing that song. And I want to ask that question that I asked at the very end here. What is consuming your heart? Whatever may be the individual sins that you are struggling with in your life, I'm going to argue once again that at the root of it all 
is whether we are living a life with God or moving further and further away from Him. And like I said, I think many of us are just too steeped in church and Christianity, probably maybe more out of habit or tradition or fear to just outright reject God. But I think there could be a very real danger like David did during this season of his life to basically push God into a corner and say, God, you stay there where you'll be safe and out of the way while I pursue these other passions that I'm falling in love with more than you. And God says, that is not a sustainable life. You were made to worship me. And what you need to know is you need me more than you could ever understand. So just pray that for a minute and then we'll respond in the song of worship. As a consequence of David's sin, the child that was conceived in that adultery ended up dying. But some years later, Bathsheba would conceive another child and his name was Solomon. And of all the wives that David had, it's interesting that God chose Bathsheba to carry on the line to the Messiah. And it's most scholars believe that that name Solomon actually translates to the word replacement. Replacement. And saying, in the ashes of your sin and in the brokenness of the destruction that you caused, David, what will rise out of that is my redeeming love to bring about hope and a future. And in fact, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be born through the blood of your family line through Bathsheba. And that's God's grace to us, is that he can restore and heal our brokenness. But we cannot hide behind our justifications. We have to come clean in repentance and seek the grace that he offers in humility. And that's what we want to do as we come to this table this morning, is to come before God and say, I need this. I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. On the day that Christ was betrayed, he broke bread with his disciples in the upper room and he had them eat of that bread and he said, this bread represents my broken body, broken for you. And then he passed around a cup of wine and he said, this wine represents the blood that I will shed. It represents the wine of the new covenant I make with you. And so he says that whenever you take of this bread and take of the cup, do it in remembrance of me. And so in honor of what God has commanded us to do, we want to do that today. Now for the sake of the flow, we really ask that everyone come forward. But what this really represents is you're making a statement of faith that says that I believe in Jesus. And if you feel that you cannot do that at this journey of your life right now, that's okay. You can just come and pass by the elements, and it's an option not to take it. That's fine, and no one in this room is going to judge you for that. If maybe even today, this service, you want to say, I want to follow Christ and live for him, would invite you to uh, take part in this communion.